Matthew chapter 12. We've wrapped up last week looking at chapter 11, and we're going to look here in chapter 12 in a moment, and we're going to see that Jesus springboards into something else in regard to rest. And um, if you'll find there the first eight verses, we'll read those together in just a moment. But the title of our message this morning is going to be Rest in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the Sabbath and the feasts and understand what they pointed to. And we're going to see that uh, Jesus was really pointing to some things in those passages in the Old Testament that he has been speaking of here in Matthew 11, where we've been for several weeks. And yet, I want us to notice the heart of the Jewish people here as Jesus is trying to teach them how they misunderstand God's design. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 12 with me, uh, if you would stand, if you're willing and able, for the first reading of God's word, we're going to look at the first eight verses this morning. And it says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, And his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they looked and said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are blameless? Yet I say to you that there is in this place one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, and as we look at what you have to say to us, about some matters that were confusing to the Jewish people and probably are confusing to us at first glance. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see Jesus in these things and how from the very beginning of creation through even the festival calendar of Israel that you were calling people to rest in you, to find the rest for their souls in Christ alone. Take this message, Father, and minister to each and every one of us where we individually are today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask this. Amen. You may have a seat this morning. So Matthew chapter 12, right on the heels of chapter 11 that we've been unpacking for several weeks, where Jesus makes that famous statement to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Because I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right on the heels of that, the very next thing that takes place in Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the Jewish people misunderstanding the intention and the purpose of the Sabbath. It's very interesting. Jesus has just gone from teaching to come to him to find rest, and then the Pharisees attack him for his disciples not resting legalistically. Very interesting how they misunderstood what Jesus was trying to tell them. First of all this morning, we're going to have five points. And the first point is rest is a built-in need for us. It's a built-in need. And we're going to see this in several places as we set the stage this morning. You could also say that it's not only a built-in need, it's, it's hardwired into us. The rest that Jesus calls us to have in Him is a blessing 
but it's also something we are designed to have a need for, even before the world fell into sin and into the fall of Adam and Eve, there still was intended to be this particular pause in order to focus upon the Lord. So in Matthew chapter 12, let's kind of look at a few of the details. And then we're going to look at a passage that many commentators believe Jesus is quoting here. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day with his disciples. Okay, so they're, they're on a little bit of a trip, and the disciples are hungry, so they start to pluck the heads of grain, and they begin to eat it. And the Pharisees see it. Apparently, they're still on the job on the Sabbath day, because they are paying attention to Jesus' disciples. And they begin to attack him and say, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. Actually, they weren't breaking any Sabbath commands. If you were in need or if someone was in need on the Sabbath, there was nothing unlawful about showing mercy or about taking care of a need. However, the Pharisees wanted to attack Jesus about this. And Jesus begins to respond to them by pointing to several examples. He first of all, in verse 3, points to David. When David was fleeing from Saul at one point, he and his men are hungry. And they stop at a priestly town where the priests had the showbread, which were some loaves of bread they were supposed to put in the tabernacle. They didn't have a temple yet. They had a tent, which was the tabernacle. And they were supposed to put this bread, 12 loaves that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, in the presence of God. And they were supposed to freshly bake new loaves and to replace them on a regular basis. And David took those loaves for him and his companions when they were running for their lives. Now, technically, only the priests were supposed to eat it, but they received their sustenance and they received uh, their provision from that holy bread when they were in need. In addition, in verse 5, Jesus cites the example of the priests. The priests, every single Sabbath day, are still offering sacrifices. They're still doing ministry and things. They work on the Sabbath, and yet they are blameless. And so apparently the Pharisees are missing the point of something here. And then Jesus makes this point, which is crucial to what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 6. Yet I say to you, in this place there is one greater than the temple. They were missing the point. I can't help but be reminded, even just this week, in, in our own nation. Maybe you've heard about the revivals that seem to be breaking out and commercials about pointing to Jesus on television right now and the chosen being in theaters and all this stuff. And in the midst of this, there is a movement within some churches and even within some vocal leaders of our denomination to say all this is horrible. It's not biblical. We need to be very cautious. I'm not saying don't use the Bible as a grid to test what's called revival. We should test it. But here's the thing. Are we missing the point of what revival is? It's not about perfection. It's about people having hearts open to coming to the Lord. And if we see that happening in our nation, if we see that happening through movie and TV ads right now, there being a hunger and interest in the things of Christ and who he is, why would we resist that? If we resist it, are we not doing exactly what the Pharisees did? There is one greater than the temple here. Let's not miss the point for the trees. Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, But if you had known what this means, and Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. And then he says in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus wraps it up by saying, 
I'm the one really that has the authority to say what can be done and what can't be done. And you're missing the point because you're not recognizing one greater than the temple and all the rituals and all the things they did was here. And I am here is what he's pointing to. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you'll turn with me to Hosea chapter 6 this morning, this is what uh, many scholars believe the passage is that Jesus is quoting there. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that refrain or that phrase, if you will, it occurs multiple places in the Old Testament where the Lord is speaking to Israel in the midst of the times when they're legalistically continuing to offer sacrifices, but they're missing the heart. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people were very good at keeping the letter of the law, but they completely were missing the point. They were missing the spirit and the intent of it. So let's look here in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and look at the context of a prophecy and this statement about desiring mercy and not sacrifice. It says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up. That we may live in his sight, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord, and his going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, the latter and the former rain to the earth. We're going to get into what that's referring to this morning. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like the light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than the burnt offerings. Even in the Old Testament, the point was never the sacrifices. The point was never to do those things in order to be right with God. They were done, and this is something we many times miss. They were done, the sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbath, all of those different observances. They were all done to point to Jesus. Every single one of them. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It never could forgive them. What it did is it pointed to the fact of the Messiah that would come and cleanse them of their sin. And that's why the Lord is able to say here, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than the burnt offerings. Back in Matthew chapter 11, remember what we've been seeing. When Jesus says, if you're weary and you're heavy laden, come and learn about me. Learn about my heart. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Even here in the Old Testament, God was calling his people to know him. The knowledge of God more than just observing everything to the letter. I pray that we don't miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Because so many of the Israelites missed it. In Genesis chapter 2 this morning, let's see how this first point, rest is a built-in need for us, played out. Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 1, God created the earth. And then in chapter 2, the Lord establishes the principle of rest. And notice, this is pre-law. This is before they ever had the sacrificial system. It's in a perfect world. And notice that there was an intention and a call to rest in the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all the work that God had made. And if you flip forward to Exodus, next book of the Bible, find chapter 20. Let's go to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, and we'll go to the Ten Commandments, and we're going to find verses 8 through 11 that has to deal with the Sabbath day. This is what the Pharisees were attacking Jesus about and his disciples in Matthew chapter 12. But let's see what the Ten Commandments said about it. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. And what I want us to notice here is that this particular one of the Ten Commandments was rooted in creation, was it not? Moses is inspired by the Spirit to go back and explain to them the reason why you need to rest is because the Lord rested in creation. It goes all the way back. This was not just a law of Moses. It was intended to teach them something about having a blessed day and a hallowed day. That means a set-apart day for a particular purpose. Another way in which we sometimes understand the hollowing of a day is a word that we get today, holiday, which really means holy day. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Hebrew scriptures and from the Old Testament, where they would have different festivals and even weekly they'd have the Sabbath that were meant to be holy days. Because rest was not meant to just be a blessing, it was also a need. Even if we're not Christians, on the face of this globe, people still need rest, do they not? We don't only need the spiritual rest for our souls that Jesus offers, but we need physical rest. God's designed us this way. And when we neglect it, we miss out on a blessing and a need that God has given us. So weekly, we see here in Genesis and Exodus, weekly, there was a day of rest. It was not just a part of the Old Testament law. It was a part of creation order. It goes all the way back to creation on the seventh day. It is how the Lord designed us, and yet we as a society often buck this blessing. If you go through the Ten Commandments, most Christians say we're to keep all of those except the Sabbath. We're free from that one. I'm not saying we're supposed to keep the Sabbath legalistically, and I'll show you that in just a moment. We're set free from legalism. But God has called us to practically pause and be still and rest just as much as to spiritually come to Jesus and to find rest for our souls. Both are important and both are part of his plan. Secondly, this morning, your second point, Jesus is the fulfillment of the feasts for us. He's the fulfillment. He's the point of the feasts and the Sabbath. Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to look at a couple passages that clearly show us that we are not bound to legalistically keep the law, but there is something to learn from studying them and understanding why God gave them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink. So dietary laws and all that stuff, which was a really big deal in the early church, it, it, there's no basis to judge one another on, on that. He also says, Or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. Then he says this in verse 17. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. 
those things were given, the Jewish festivals, the Sabbath, all of that, the observance of these things, the dietary laws, the sacrifices, they were all given as a shadow, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come and do. Every one of the particular animals that were offered, every one of the different sacrifices, pointed to different ways in which Jesus applies the gospel in our life and to particular ways that we respond to the gospel. There were fellowship offerings that had to do with uh, restoring right relationship with the Lord, cleansing our hands of a blockage in our relationship between us and Him. There were sin offerings that had to do with coming before Him with an error we had made, a sin we had committed in our life. Each and every one of them pointed to Jesus. But the substances of Christ, the point of all of them was Jesus. Abraham was saved before the giving of the law by faith. We are saved looking back at Jesus having come by faith. We're all saved the same way. Romans chapter 14, if you turn there with me. Another passage that clearly shows us that legalism we are set free from. The substance belongs to Jesus of these commands. Romans chapter 14 and we're going to find verse 1, and then we're going to jump down to verses 5 through 6. It's very interesting how Paul sets this up in verse 1, the entire matter of what he's going to address. He says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. To not argue about doubtful things, but to receive one whose faith is weak. Then he goes on to clarify what some of that is in verses 5 and 6. He says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord does not observe it. In other words, there was this disagreement going on in the early church between the Jewish believers who now trusted in Jesus as the Messiah and the Gentiles who did not know the Lord. There was this disagreement amongst them of, should we keep the Sabbath, should we keep the feast, should we observe these days? And what Paul was telling them is, no, you don't have to do that. Our faith is what makes us right with God. If you want to observe it, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the festival or the holiday. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But it is not what makes you right with God. And that's the point I want us to see. Legalistically observing these things does not make us right with God. It did not make the Pharisees right with God. It did not make the Jewish people right with God. And it cannot make us right with Him. Only Jesus can. Hebrews chapter 4, if you would turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks at length about the rest of God and how Jesus fulfills it for us. And we're going to look at uh, several verses here in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is a really good book to understanding the law. If you want to understand how the law applies um, to the gospel and what it was pointing to about Jesus, the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians are key places to look for understanding of those things. So Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And the second verse may throw some of us for a loop, but it's saying something important. Verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest some of you seem to come short of it. Verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now what the author of Hebrews is referring to here, and it's going to become clear as we go on, 
The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The to them that he's referring to is the Old Testament saints. And that there were Old Testament people that heard the gospel. They heard the fact that they were supposed to have faith in the Lord, but it did not benefit them because they did not have faith. Let's go on. Verse 3 is going to quote the Old Testament. For we have who have believed do not enter that rest as he said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They cannot enter the rest that Jesus promises through legalism. That's what he's saying. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, before the world ever was created, the Lord knew he'd have to send his son. Jesus was planned to come, and the work was finished and accomplished. And by faith, we've had to look at it the entire time. Verse 4, for he has spoken in certain places of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the Sabbath day from all his works. And in this place, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and that those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Referring to the Jewish people that not every individual who was a Jew but collectively, the majority of the nation rejected Christ, so they could not enter into this rest. Verse 7, And he designates a certain day, saying in David today, After such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua who led them into the promised land, surely they'd have rest now from the Lord, and they'd trust him and obey him. But no, they didn't. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, capital H, Jesus rest, has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. The point of pausing, the point of times in our life to physically stop is to remind us of the fact that everything we have is from Christ and in Christ. He fulfilled everything for us. Nothing we do can make us right with him. Jesus has already done everything. Doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility for our actions. We do. But we are called to trust in him as the fulfillment of all the things that need to be kept. Not to trust in our own works. That is what Hebrews is pointing to. This morning we are going to take a look here real briefly. And then we'll circle back around two other times at the Jewish feasts. The Jewish feasts were crucial. The Sabbath was crucial, but so were seven Jewish feasts. And there were sevens all throughout. Seven days of the week, you'd rest one day in seven. Every seven years, you were supposed to have a Sabbath year for the land and not plant crops. Every 49 years, uh, and then in the 50th year, after seven Sabbaths, you were supposed to proclaim liberty and cancel all debts. Constantly, there were all these sevens in their history and in their calendar that God gave them. And on a yearly basis, they had seven feasts that they were supposed to keep. And I want you to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of these feasts that they did, foreshadowing what Jesus was coming to do, and some things he's yet still going to do in the future. And they did these all the time. The substance belonged to Christ. The point of them belonged to Christ. But just like they missed the point of the Sabbath, so often the Jewish people missed the point of the feasts. First of all, there was the feast of Passover. And hopefully you know that story, how the Israelites are in Egypt and they put the blood on the doorposts and the angel passes over them. 
that clearly is pointing to the fact that Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood spiritually covers us as believers. He's the fulfillment of that festival that they celebrated and still celebrate hundreds and hundreds of years later. And then secondly, tied in with Passover, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were supposed to get all the leaven out of their lives, not eat anything, because leaven represented sin. How just a little bit of yeast, leaven, would get into your life and it would pervade everything. It would affect everything. Jesus was our sinless, unleavened righteousness offered for us. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul tells us this. I'm not just drawing these connections on my own. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Therefore purge out the old leaven. Get rid of sin in your life is what he's saying. That you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the point of Passover was to point to Jesus. And wrapped up with those two feasts was the Feast of first fruits, And that was the day in which Jesus was resurrected. And Scripture says that he was the first fruits of resurrection for the believer. In God's timetable, when Jesus came back, you'll notice Passover taking place in that crucifixion week. You'll notice the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you'll notice Jesus rising from the grave on first fruits. All of these things they did was to point to what Jesus would do on behalf of believers. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And verse 23 says, But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So Jesus was the first one to rise from the grave on that first resurrection day. But in his resurrection is a promise for believers that we will be resurrected with new bodies in eternity. Fourthly, there is the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost. And this feast took place in Acts chapter 2. Once again, the timing of the feasts was fulfilled in certain ways. And on that day in Acts chapter 2, Jesus sent the gift of the Holy Spirit. His church was formed. And there's some details there we'll get into a little later this morning of how the harvest of both the Jew and the Gentile began. This was the second harvest feast they had in Israel on an annual basis. And that second harvest would not just be of the Jewish people, but of the Jews and the Gentiles. And it continues to this day. But those were the feasts that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. There are some other feasts, the last three, that Jesus will fulfill at his second coming. The first four all took place with the latter rains and the spring in March and April. The latter three took place in September, October, the latter rains and the final harvest. I think you'll see the connection pretty clearly. Fifthly, the fifth and first of the latter rain, the uh, fall um, festivals, fall feasts, was the Feast of Trumpets. Now, I think this connection is going to be pretty simple. When Jesus comes back, it's when at the last trumpet. That imagery was to evoke and remind the Israelites that they would come before the Lord and be raptured. That at that last trumpet, when they would celebrate stopping work and they'd have a holy day and they'd have a festival, that that is a picture of Jesus coming to rapture his beloved bride. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul tells us this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There's a point behind these feasts. 
The sixth feast was the Day of Atonement. It was the day of their new civil calendar. It was like New Year for them. It's considered the holiest day in the Jewish calendar on a yearly basis. Yom Kippur. And on the Day of Atonement, you would fast and you would afflict your souls and do no work. Because you would remember your sin and your need for the Lord. And Israel would even have an offering where they would take a scapegoat. You ever heard that term before? It comes straight out of Scripture. They would take a scapegoat. And they would put the sins of the people on it, and they would bear the sins of the people away. And this feast points to the fact that after Jesus returns to rapture his people during the tribulation, Israel will once again be restored as a nation. They will, for the most part, for the majority of the nation, rather than rejecting Christ, they will come back to Christ. And they will be atoned for. And they practice, even to this day, this feast on an annual basis, And yet one day it will be fulfilled. And I want to show you why we have a confidence that this will be fulfilled in the future. Two places, first of all. One from the Old Testament and then one from the New Testament. And there's many, but we're just going to look at these two. Zechariah chapter 12, if you want to turn to that one. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. We see an overlap in this passage of the Israelites as a nation fasting and afflicting themselves before the Lord, responding to him in grief over the fact that they had rejected him in the past, and as a nation returning to him. That's not happened yet, but one day we have the prophecy that it will happen. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, And they will grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Every year they have this feast of the Day of Atonement. And they fast and they afflict their souls over their sins. And yet one day the fulfillment of that ritual that they do every single year will be met when they mourn over their sin and having rejected Jesus. And they see him. They see the one whom they have pierced and they turn back to him. In Romans chapter 11 and Romans 9 and 11 speak a lot about um, the fulfillment of the fact that one day the Lord will draw the Jewish nation back to himself. The church has not replaced Israel. There's promises made to Israel that the Lord will keep. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I don't want you to not know this mystery about what God is going to do. And then it goes on to say something I think very important. Lest you be wise in your own opinion. If I was to ask us this morning, if we were in a Sunday school class and I was to ask us, how many opinions have you heard about the end times? We probably could all list quite a few. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of what's going to happen, the mystery of what God's going to do. Otherwise, you'll be wise in your own opinion. That the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, Israel, for the most part, has rejected the Lord. And the reason why is so that we non-Jewish people would come to Christ. And when the fullness of the Gentile harvest is completed, that's when Jesus is going to return to rapture his church. But then during the tribulation... Israel will be set up once again as his people, as his nation. God will keep his promises and Israel will once again be restored. Then seventhly, there is the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
that is also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It's the third of the Jewish harvest feasts, and, and there's a point to that I'll get into in a little while. But this Feast of Tabernacles points to the fact that Jesus will tabernacle, which refers to the idea of living in a tent, being with people. Um, they lived in tabernacles when they were wandering in the wilderness. They didn't have the temple, so they had the tent of the tabernacle of testimony and the Ark of the Testimony. Jesus will one day in history literally tabernacle with people again. He's returning to sit on the throne and to sit on the throne for a thousand years first in that millennial reign and to continue on into all of eternity. Micah chapter 4 speaks of this. If you want to look at the first seven verses of Micah chapter 4 with me, and then we'll see a fulfillment as well in Revelation of how this is what Jesus will do. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the peoples shall flow to it. Non-Jewish people are going to come and flow to the kingdom of the Lord when he returns. That's never happened yet in history. Verse 2, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth. Can you imagine that time when Jesus sits on the throne and he's teaching the nations from his own mouth? What an amazing time that will be. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And notice the peace like no other that will pervade the entire earth. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from now on, even forever. And then in Revelation chapter 21, 3, the word that is used for the seventh of the Jewish feasts is even particularly mentioned. Near the very end of the Bible, chapter 21, verse 3 of Revelation, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he, Jesus, is the point of the tabernacle. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God will be with them and be their God. We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast, but thirdly this morning, we see the feasts provide a reminder of the way of living in Christ. Even in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were being taught lessons that we see in the New Testament through these seven feasts. If you want to open up to Leviticus chapter 23 with me, uh, that is the primary chapter that explains these feasts of Israel. Leviticus chapter 23, and we'll look at some of those details as we explain some of the connections here. In verse 4, we're going to start off with Passover and unleavened bread. They were so intertwined together, they were distinct, but they really kind of became one feast because of the timing of which they took place. And we'll see that here in Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. 
They were holidays they would observe, and these feasts proclaimed something. Now, I want to draw a connection for us for a moment. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Through the elements of the uh, juice representing his blood and the unleavened bread representing his pure body, we point and proclaim to what Jesus did for us, do we not? And we do that, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, until he comes. There is a purpose to that festival, if you will, that we as New Testament saints do that proclaims who the Lord is. In the same way, each one of these feasts were appointed times on their calendar that proclaimed aspects of God's truth to them. It goes on to say in verse 5, On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To the Lord for seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So Passover and unleavened bread are so intertwined because they occur right after another. The first one begins on the 14th day, and the second one begins on the 15th day. And if you jump down to uh, verse 10, we then find the Feast of Firstfruits is also wrapped up with this particular, these other two feasts, these three, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and Firstfruits, and it's easier to see that in your notes than me saying it, are all in the exact same uh, time period. They're all overlapping one another. It says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest and he'll wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. And on the day after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it and you will offer on that day. And it talks about the other offerings that they will make. Here's the connection for us. They were celebrating Passover every year being taught and reminded to, by faith, apply the blood of the Lord to their lives. That's the only way in which the judgment of God passes over. And as believers, we do the same thing, do we not? We trust the Lord by faith, and because we come to Him by faith, we are delivered from the judgment that otherwise we would have. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, in which they have to get all the sin out, all the leaven out, that points to the fact that in 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins to the Lord, and he's faithful and just to forgive us, is he not? We live the Christian life the same way, seeking to live a life of dealing with our sin before the Lord, not allowing it to master us. We continue to walk that out. And then there's the Feast of first fruits. Now, they had to take their, um, their very first of their three harvests. And there are going to be three of them that we'll highlight. The first harvest they had, because they had different crops in Israel, was barley. And the first fruits that they would bring here with the Feast of First Fruits was their, uh, their first gathering of barley to the Lord, and they would offer it to him. Well, when Jesus was offered on the cross, he was the first harvest on our behalf. He was the down payment, if you will, of God saving the Jewish people and saving us. He offered himself, and he was the bread of life, first fruits offered for us. And he was barley, he was Jewish. Keep that in mind because we're going to see in the next um, feast that there's a connection of the Gentiles. The next feast is the Feast of Pentecost. It's the second of the harvest uh, feasts. It's 50 days to the day. That's why it's Penta, like Pentagon. It stands for five. 50 days after the Feast of first fruits. So they've had their first offering of barley, which represents the Jewish people, and Jesus being that first fruit sacrifice for all of us to the Lord. But then they have a second festival, the second harvest, 
of Pentecost. And I want you to look at the details here, because this is very powerful, the connection. Verse 15 of Leviticus chapter 23. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that's the Feast of first fruits. count seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And you shall bring from your dwellings, notice this, two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, and they shall be made of fine flour, and notice how they're made. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And then it talks about offering other blood sacrifices as well. When they offered these on Pentecost, they offered two loaves. They now were bringing in their second harvest. Barley had been harvested, and now also the wheat had been harvested. Do you remember that parable of Jesus when he looks out at the fields and he tells the disciples the fields are white for harvest? The way I understand that, that's referring to a wheat harvest, not a barley harvest. It's referring to it's time to go reach the Gentiles with the gospel. What happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened is that both Jew and Gentile, both leavened loaves, one of barley, one of wheat, they both came to recognize that they are both sinners and in need of the same Messiah, Jesus. And that was offered to the Lord. And since the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the gospel is going out to all peoples. The primary people that are responding are Gentiles at this time, the wheat harvest, if you will. Then we go on to the Feast of Trumpets. And it speaks of that here in verse 24. Speak to the children of Israel in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, and you shall have a Sabbath rest. So this was a day in which they would cease all work. You shall have a Sabbath rest, a, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. One of the interesting things about the Feast of Trumpets is, as I've studied, this is one that the Jewish people would be, um, they'd just be out in the fields and they'd be doing their work, but when the trumpets would sound, they were to stop and they were to go and they were to worship the Lord. It points to the fact that we, as believers, are to live now, labor to Christ, occupying until He comes, and at the moment that we don't know when the last trumpet is sounded, we will be raptured with Him and we will go celebrate and we will worship Him. This as well pointed to Christ. And it points to our view as believers. We live occupying until he comes. And we don't know the moment that that will happen. Then sixthly, there was the Feast of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Verse 27. Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. And you shall afflict your souls an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you between the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. Very interesting, because if we don't respond to the Lord by faith, if we don't grieve over our sin and trust Jesus alone as our Savior, we're cut off from being amongst the people of God, are we not? We see here the atonement teaches us that there is nothing wrong with mourning over our sin to afflicting our souls and turning to Christ. And to be honest, that's what we not only pray for ourselves, it's what we pray for those we know that don't know the Lord, that they would be convicted of their sin, that it would lead to repentance and a new life, that there would be a mourning over where we are without Jesus, recognizing he's the only one that can bring us back to right relationship with the Lord. 
And then we come to the third harvest feast of Israel, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the interesting thing about this one, well, I'll explain that in a minute. Verse 34, speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. In this particular feast, there was both a Sabbath rest at the beginning and a second Sabbath rest at the end of eight days. This one most likely represents the fact that when Jesus returns and in the, the Feast of Trumpets and he makes atonement for Israel, he will atone for our sacrifice, uh, for, for our sin, pardon me. He will make sacrifice for his people. And for seven years and that period of time of completion of also a thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign over his people before he brings an end to it all. And both the beginning and the ending will be in rest. Him coming for his people is him giving his beloved church rest. And when everything is over after the thousand years and the last great rebellion happens of those that are living, there will once again be rest and then for all of eternity. And if you jump down to verse 24, you have the description on what this Feast of Tabernacles or Booths was about. Kids probably enjoyed this one because every year this is what they did. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. You who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that the generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths or tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt for I am the Lord your God. So every year, they would cut down boughs. They would build lean-tos, essentially. And they'd live in them for seven days to remember the fact that God is with His people and God is their provider. Practically, this is a reminder for us on how we live in Christ because we are pilgrims passing through this world. You don't have to have a house to live. You can live in a tent. We are pilgrims passing through and our eternal home is with the Lord. His kingdom is not of this world. Our trust is not in the things of this world, but rather it is in Christ. And so we see these things that are pointed to. Fourthly this morning, the feasts point to the heart of the Lord. The seven feasts of Israel, they point to the heart of the Lord. The first four were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. The Passover, that we are freed from bondage. The unleavened bread, that we are cleansed from sin. First fruits, that the promises of the resurrected Christ are also our promise as believers for eternity. Pentecost, that both Jew and Gentile find their rest for their souls in him alone. And those that are yet to be fulfilled are the fall feasts. The feast of trumpets when the Lord will return for his beloved. The sixth day of atonement when Christ's atonement will be applied to a restored nation of Israel. God will not abandon his people Though at the present time, they are not trusting him. But one day they will, once again as a nation, trust him. And seventhly, tabernacles. The heart of the Lord is reflected here. Jesus will dwell again with man, literally, for the millennial reign and into eternity. And God's people, all of them, will rest secure in him for all of time. There are lessons in these feasts in the Sabbath, as well as the seven feasts, 
that the Israelites just didn't get the point of many times. And yet we clearly, I hope, have seen this morning, they are fulfilled by Jesus, and they point to Jesus, and they give us the calendar, and they give us a picture of the heart of the Lord for his people and of his faithfulness. Now he's always just right on time. But these commands are both spiritual and practical. Jesus alone is the one that can provide rest for our souls. But we are also called to be still, are we not, in Scripture? To be still and to know he is God. There is a reason why there are times in our life, and we're not legalistically under the Jewish laws, but there are times in our life when we have to stop literally and pause. We worship the Lord. We rest in the Lord. That is something he has called us to, not just spiritually, but also practically. And then fifthly this morning, the yoke of Jesus is livable. It's livable. Jesus said to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He tells us that it's livable. Keeping all these things without Christ, like the Jewish people attempted to do, what a heavy, unlivable yoke. To be trying to live all these things and yet not trusting Christ as your Savior. This morning, if you would bow your head and consider this with me, I think the application is very clear. We've looked at a lot, but the application is clear. Are we living, resting in Jesus? Many times, that's exactly what the people of God miss. Over and over again, the Jewish people neglected the Sabbath. They missed God's blessing in it. Later on, they made it a legalism rather than recognizing the blessing in it. Same thing with the feasts. But Jesus has invited us to follow him, to take his yoke upon us. It's not about dotting I's and crossing T's. It's about trusting him, about having faith in him, about his blood being applied over the doorposts of our hearts, about our hope being rooted in the fact that he is returning again. That that trumpet will sound and he will take us to be with him on that day. And we anticipate that, but we don't know when it will be. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4 told us there remains a rest for the people of God. God's heart is the same from the Old Testament to the New that he desires his people to have rest in him. He who has entered his rest has ceased from his works as God did from his. Is there something that you're trusting in this morning? Something you're doing? Something good, perhaps, you're doing that you're trusting in to justify you before God? If your hope is placed there, your hope is misplaced. Nothing you do can ever justify you before Him. Only the blood of Jesus can. This morning, would you see the heart of Christ? Would you turn to him as the savior of your soul? Would you not miss that one greater than the temple is here? He's here this morning by the power of his spirit. As Tom and Scott make their way up, feel free to respond however the Lord leads you during this time. Whatever he is guiding you to do, perhaps to pray or perhaps to sing. Let's give the Lord this moment.